Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Timothy Hall is an artist who was born in 1979 in New York, New York. He received an MFA from the Parsons School of Design in New York and a BA from New York University. Recent solo exhibitions include For Amonis, who died at 29 and 610 at Ashes Ashes in Los Angeles, painting in the imperfect tense at Klaus von Nixsagen Gallery in New York in 2016, and Pastiche Cicero at Fitzroy Gallery in New York in 2014. His work has been included in group exhibitions at Mitchell, Innes, and Nash, The Hole, The Tate Modern, The Morris Museum of Art, and Anomas Foundation. His work has been featured and reviewed in the New York Times, Art Forum, Art in America, Flash Art, Interview Magazine, The LA Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle. I stopped by Timothy's studio in Greenpoint and we talked about the importance of seeing work in person to the current role of criticism in the lore of the Hudson Valley and much more. Here's our conversation. Yeah, the Spotify thing though, not Spotify, what's it? Um, I have um, Sirius oh, yeah. Radio, yeah. which I was like dead set against. I like put my foot down, but it was like, oh, free for six months. And I thought, what the fuck? Yeah. Oh boy, they got me. Oh yeah, you got Like I, I, once it, once it, when, when it went away, it was like withdrawal from heavy drugs. And I was like, I ended up having to shell out the moolah yeah. for serious radio because I found that I can't listen to the real radio anymore. The free trial work. <laughs> totally did and like I'm like I have like 60s on 6 80s on 8 they have a new wave station they have like a Grateful Dead I hated the Grateful Dead hated the Grateful Dead and then you found and out now, why they're so amazing they, and they had a Grateful Dead station yeah. and I was like and it was in the summer and I was feeling particularly like you know peace love happiness yeah. I was like I'll listen to the Grateful Dead station they've got a fucking station yeah. amazing yeah. like I love them like I now I'm like a deadhead. Well, if you take the Thanks band to away from serious. the crowd, yeah, right. exactly. especially like in college days. Well, that's what really turned me off is that like yeah. I went to Hampshire College as a freshman, and there was like tons of deadheads and fishheads and that sort of thing, and and they totally they would like howl at the music and run around like half nude and I thought this is not this is the opposite of cool yeah. so like I I just never was into them and but I always sort of liked a lot of the Grateful Dead merch like I liked mm-hmm. the the ephemera yeah like the ephemera like I, I there's sort of a part of me that was always into like a little bit of that yeah I was like a sort of a new wave hippie if that ever was a thing I mean I vacillated I guess back and forth but nev- never like the Grateful Dead but somehow Sirius Radio got me into them but it has not gotten me into Bon Jovi it has not gotten me into Margaritaville it's so so it, it does have its it does have its limits yeah it doesn't conquer all it does not conquer all <laughs> but it, I have gotten into some new stuff because of it 
because they do sometimes play. It's it's generally not deep cuts. It's generally like pretty standard radio yeah. fare. But they do sometimes play some deep cuts, and I'm like, wow, I never heard that REM song, or mm-hmm. I never heard that band, so and so and such and such. And so I have gotten into some new stuff from it. Yeah. And of course they have like political radio. They have MSNBC radio. They have CNN radio. They have so you know they have classical music radio. They, from the metro, they have the Metropolitan Opera radio. So it's pretty good. You know, it's it's pretty exhaustive. Like I never really seem to get bored of it. Yeah. And driving to this college or that college. Um, if I'm not listening to podcasts, I'm listening to uh, the Sirius Radio. So, who, but you're you're against Spotify, are you? Well, I've always been against sort of the things like whatever you know, like Pandora or Spotify or those sort of like musical conglomerate things because I def I feel like I've discovered traditionally all the music I love serendipitously mm-hmm. and through just total. Like some someone I, I liked recommended it or I happened to have heard it on a college radio station or something like that. And I I also love albums, mm-hmm. like beginning to end sort of albums. And and I also love the tactility of buying and holding the album yeah. and going through the liner notes and all that sort of thing. And and I also respect the album as a singular thought. Mm-hmm. much in the way like a solo exhibition is like a singular thought yeah. whereas to me like Spotify is like the, the art fair of music mm-hmm. it's like not a singular thought generally it's like one song that comes after another that they think you're gonna like um, it's sort of this weird dictated curation um, but then you also can cherry pick everything so you end up like only listening to like one song that's a discrete singular song after another one that's a discrete singular song and there's no conceptual carry through in any way and to me that undermines the the primacy of the album yeah and in much in the way that i've felt like art fairs undermine the primacy of the solo exhibition Mm -hmm. um and so many artists end up making work for art fairs um, or in singular paintings for art fairs that that they don't spend anywhere near as much time thinking about well what the hell does this all mean how is it in dialogue with other artists how is it in dialogue with uh, the greater world right it goes to a convention hall in Singapore or something or Brussels and it doesn't really enter into any cultural consciousness and so to me uh in a way spotify and those things are like that Mm -hmm. sort of Uh, i mean i guess i'm i'm cutting my nose up despite my face because in a way serious radio is like that too Mm -hmm. but it's not there's no sort of algorithm there's no personal curation you don't get to live in your own bubble Mm -hmm. um there's something slightly more egalitarian about what you listen to yeah um I think when it first came out, Pandora, I kind of fought that because it was just, you like this artist, we'll play you a radio station based off that artist, yeah. and I don't like being told what to listen to. Yeah, I always found that offensive. But then Spotify yeah. lets you build your own playlists, which sure. is and you can just listen to records. Yeah. Like, you can find a record and just play that, and then yeah. it's done. So at least it has that option, whereas sure. when it used to just be, we stream music you like. You know what I mean? That was kind of... Well, and I, I still... 
have an iPod that has albums on it and I listen that way or as you saw in my studio I have still tons of CDs with their cases um, on the floor in a thing I also have that CD booklet filled with all you know the CDs and I and I thumb through that and it's very mood based and and it's very much like a, a active process of selecting and putting on and listening committing to the whole album to someone's whole thought mm-hmm. process and I you know so I still sort of live in that in that a- analog world so to speak see I think the parallel of the change in the way people are just thinking about everything with you know the method of communication changing I think that may happen in music too because I feel like people write albums less these days absolutely like well, they're not they thinking don't about to. it as a record yeah they're recording a handful of songs or whatever sure. they're gonna they're gonna release it but there's so many releases that come out as singles on digital services that it's almost like the art fair thing where it's yeah. just like well it's just, this is a new one I'm working on here which Take I think it. is a shame because I think that it doesn't allow for a greater um, foundation of thought I, agree. I think it undermines a complexity and a sort of arc of of idea or arc of sort of creativity I mean think about you know an album like Sgt. Pepper's by the Beatles right like everything about that from the way each song goes into the next and the cover and the notes inside and you know all that was yeah. of course so much like a real work of art mm-hmm. you know on many many levels and I, I feel like that was a way of, of extreme creative expression that wasn't just music it was visual I mean you've talked about this in other podcasts the sort of visual nature of like music or the skateboarding culture or something yeah. right you know that I feel that now with just artists release musical artists releasing just the single is just sort of like I'm making one painting for Instagram. How many likes can I get? But that seems to me such a fleeting sense of accomplishment or a fleeting, fleeting dialogue. It's like I think it resonates with what we were talking about before about the the criticism or like the critique or or the the sort of way people think about work now. If you used to go see a show, you would see that show. It felt like the new body of work that that artist working on is a specific idea you know what I mean and now it's like people are encountering the work online they're seeing one in an art fair here they're seeing it reproduced on blogs everywhere so there's a different sort of engagement with the critical dialogue of the work well and so much criticism now sort of it just becomes a rehash of the press release or purely descriptive I mean even the New York Times you know we look to them for some sort of critical review but it's it's largely just descriptive or a lot of those are largely just descriptive reviews and they're you know I think that there's just a dearth of actual you know criticism where someone is tackling an idea and sort of challenging or thinking about what that idea in that art is and is it successful is it working is it communicating um I know Roberta Smith has now been um, sort of posting mini reviews on her Instagram uh-huh. page, and 
I think a lot of people love that, but I think a lot of other people are like, oh shit, is this where it's going now? Yeah. Like, like the re- like you're just gonna get a review on Instagram. How do you put that in your bibliography? <laughs> you know, like how yeah, do you right. cite Roberta Smith Instagram? Someone posted this photo of my work. Exactly. Posted this day in this hour, and you put it on your CV. But I think often I it's getting to the point now, just from my own experience, that like I was saying before you you have an exhibition and you really like sort of look at how much instagram traction it's getting and that now is sort of a barometer of of a level of success and Mm -hmm. i think that it's sort of fall it's a false friend well and and that's always existed in a certain sense of like the awareness of someone's work so if if you had a show up in 98 and a ton of people went to it and they were spreading the word word of mouth that's valuable because a lot of people are into it and maybe you haven't seen the show but you know oh this is a big deal this show because everyone's talking about it but but what happens when it's in social media now it's the image of it is getting out there so you have a different interpretation of the work based on that two-dimensional reproduction well you certainly image. don't have to go see anything anymore uh, our certainly shows, you can check it i mean yeah. whether you like it or not if you're on social media and you follow some art people you've pretty much seen the art fair before you've gone to see it absolutely like, everything's posted yeah. so even with exhibitions, I feel like in the 90s or in the 2000s, you, if you heard about a great exhibition, you absolutely had to go see it. Yeah. There was no way to really experiencing it outside of the you know, real-life temporal experience. But now I, I feel like so many people are like, yeah, I saw your exhibition on Instagram or on the <laughs> website. It looked great. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I actually make work that is all about seeing it in person surface yeah. you know it's it's all about surface and light so i i find that the work almost never looks the way it should on instagram or on jpeg but we often end up having to think how is this exhibition going to look on instagram mm-hmm. how's it going to look as a jpeg because that's how most collectors see things or writers or even other art going people yeah so having to make concessions towards the digital age is is a reality for it's sure weird. it's a microcosm of the whole positive negative aspects of you know of technology getting yeah. the word out there you well, know it's what I mean? the it's the faustian bargain of you know it giveth but it also taketh yeah, away exactly and so you have to find the the way to live within that where you can fight against it but also work with it right you know because you need to you can't eschew it you ha- you can't be a total luddite i mean you have to yeah accept and and grow and be nimble as we're seeing yeah um but you also need to be critical of it and how is it changing what i'm doing how's it changing the landscape yeah i think that's one of the main reasons i love doing this is because like i just go talk to someone and go see stuff in person and it's maybe out of because you know you see a lot of work online and you can you can art friend people on social media you know be friends with people But then when you go actually talk for a while, it's, it's you know. Well, what I think is so great about this is that this isn't, I mean, so many interviews, I have done so many interviews that are like email interviews yeah. where they just send me five questions, I answer them. It's totally fine, but it it's, it's, it's hollow in a way or it's stiff. Yeah. And, and so this is a way of having a digital platform, which is the podcast, but yeah. also having a real life experience where yeah. you and I are looking at each other. We're in an actual space that's relatable to what we're talking about. Right. So it sort of 
uh, to me, this is in a way a, a happy medium of like embracing technology, but still understanding what's important. Yeah, you know, and and I try to f- keep myself from getting too critical of the way that you know it's changing, the way that people experience work. Sure. And, but at the same time, I think the reason we have so much at stake is because artwork's really about communication. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, you know, like what you're talking about with surface and the way that you're making things is such a important sort of visceral reaction to like a real thing, you know, that if you, if you dilute it through a reproduction, it, it just takes it. I mean, how many times have you heard about a show and then you go see it in person and it's just the little, like the Agnes Martin show, like those little pencil lines that you don't see in the reproduction. Agnes Martin looks terrible in reproduction yeah. once you've seen, because I, I often teach Agnes Martin in my painting classes, mm-hmm. and I tell my students, well, you have to go to Dia to see it, yeah. and I feel like at first they sort of grumble about that, but when they go and they see it, pretty much all of them say, holy mackerel, this is transformative like I I, under, I, I get it yeah. like I understand every all this bullshit you were talking about right. no it makes sense it's real it's the you know yeah. it's luminescent it's transcendent it's the same with the Solowit wall draw, like yeah. the pencil wall drawings I often teach about those um, in drawing class as you know conceptual sort of rule based drawing and I feel like no one gets it this sort of transcendence of it until they go to the D and they see those those ones and it's like wow you really yeah. have to see this stuff in it person. helps that that space too is so beautiful sure. it's, it's like a spiritual <laughs> yeah. place for art fans yeah. you know and maybe the the greatest example is Ryman I mean if you show yeah. a bunch of art students who have no idea who Robert Ryman is the work in reproduction it's total bullshit they'll just yeah. look at you yeah <laughs> are you kidding me you might as well show them a urinal yeah and then you go to the space and you see those very subtle differences in surface and the way you know when I'm into that like I when I make this art in this room here in the studio I really think about what it would look like if it was in a sacred numinal space Mm -hmm. right and so to me I I look for exhibition space or I think about it in terms of space which, which is why I, sometimes I you know would rail against like the art fair because there's nothing very sacred or beautiful or special or numinal about uh, an art fair type of space. It's a mall. Yeah, it's basically like showing the work in the mall. And I think that maybe certain works are good for that, but other works are not. And, and to have a, a sense of that space is important to me. Like the show I did at Klaus last winter um, in in what was their project room mm-hmm. had this very uh, Kantian feel of like the numinal space like it felt like a sacred spiritual dimensional space mm-hmm. that that had that would put you in a different state of mind uh, than any any other typical type of room Mm -hmm. and to me that like I thought a lot about the work in that space specifically and that's why I feel like that the works at Dia work so well is because that space is so spot on for them it's the perfect space for that work it's funny because I was going to mention that about art fairs that there are a group of artists who make work that succeeds in that setting the sort of like one off Definitely. You know, or like the not one liners, but you know, like yeah. this. Like the Urs Fisher 
Right. Or, there it is. Or super graph graphic, like mm-hmm. minimal type of thing that like mirrors. Yeah. Artwork with have you noticed the jump in artwork with mirrors in it in the past like <laughs> five to ten years? Like you go to art fair, there's yeah. a lot of like selfie selfie pro- right um, because you want to you take a picture yeah. of you in it oh, and then yeah. you post yeah. it yeah well i think the art fair has also been sort of amping up that that the idea of the visual gimmick yeah. because of it's like i was saying how often now as artists we have to consider how the work may or may not look on instagram right. because that's how the majority of people are seeing it mm-hmm. i think some artists maybe are taking that a little too seriously right. like i want to get or, or maybe the gallery or the artist is yeah. thinking how do I get my piece to be the one that's photographed? Right. I'll do this. Yeah. And for some artists, that actually works really well. That's in their wheelhouse of the kind of work they make. Sure. For most artists, not yeah. so much. And, yeah. you know, and group shows, I love group shows because it's such an amazing opportunity to, to draw parallels and discussions between different artists' work and Do you feel like there are fewer group shows now than there used to be? That's a good question. I've just been getting this feeling that I just feel like I'm going to fewer. I feel like I'm asked to be in fewer. Like, I just feel like there's not... I felt like when I was coming up in the art world, coming into the art world, it was like so much about the group show. There were like seminal group shows, lots of these group shows that would put together communities and put together ideas. And I feel like I'm seeing either two-person shows Mm -hmm. or like solo shows or like project shows but not really like group shows like I, I used to I and I wonder it might be I mean it's hard because what that's about I know so many galleries spend so much of their time planning for these fairs that it's hard for them to really focus a ton of time on what's I mean they they do the solo show is one thing but a group show as you know is it's a, a lot, lot of work. more work yeah because I totally I used to curate a bunch of them and it was I, I, one of the reasons I sort of slowed down or stopped doing that is because it, between teaching and being an artist myself, also doing curatorial work was enormously taxing on time yeah. and, and mental energy. And just, I would imagine from a dealer's standpoint too, you're splitting that, that work, like the payment of the work too, you know, it's like you... You have to. You're dealing with a lot more insurance and all that stuff. Oh and yeah, and you have to split it between curator, artist, dealer, home gallery dealer. You know, mm-hmm. like it. There's yeah. It, it's it's definitely complex. But it was fun. I I loved curating because to me it was community building. It was yeah. like I like X amount of artists. I'm gonna put them in the show because they're all in dialogue. Sometimes I would put my work in it. Sometimes I wouldn't put my work in it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I specifically wouldn't put work of certain good friends in it because like I wanted to get my net wider. Yeah. Like so it's good to be able to have those opportunities. Yeah, and I feel like artists are good curators generally. Totally. Look at the Robert Gober show, you know, of, um, is it Forrest Best? No, who's that, who's the artist that Robert Gober was such a big champion of and did that amazing show at the Whitney of his work? Oh, uh, uh, Birchfield. Yes. Yeah. Love that, you know, brilliant little curatorial effort there. Yeah, because even when they're off or when it's weird or like wrong in a way, it's genius because it's something that normal curators probably wouldn't think of <laughs> you know what I mean like totally. even if it fails it's really interesting well because often so so many professional curators are overly intellectual mm-hmm. and I think that often the artists bring a lot of the emotion gut or the, or the yeah. gut into it 
Yeah. It's like this, this person might look interesting next to this person sort of deal. And, and the community that you're aware of usually work through your channels of yeah. people. And that's kind of interesting in and of itself, too, you know. Totally. But, yeah, I mean, I guess that's why there's maybe there's less group shows. There's a, a more artists putting on shows in their own spaces and small spaces. And, you well, know. you, you got to find a workaround. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely in a transitional period in the art world. I think the, the primacy of the, of the actual brick-and-mortar gallery is being greatly challenged. Mm-hmm. I th- you know, the, the mid-level gallery is being greatly challenged. It's sort of like the Walmartization of the art world where you're either super emerging or super mega big. Yeah. It's like there's no sort of like hometown department store anymore. Right. You know, and, and the art world, I think, sort of sh- shielded from that where the rest of the economy went that way. Mm-hmm. Or it's also like um, in teaching, it's like either you're like a lowly underpaid adjunct or you're a full-time professor being paid quite well with great yeah. benefits. It's like there's no in between anymore. And music, think about music. You're either totally. Beyonce and selling a trillion yeah. and actually, well actually still selling records or you're just a band that's getting a penny for download or on YouTube and you're yeah. playing dive bar, you know? like Yeah, but I feel like the art world has been has been a little uh, uh, um, shielded from that, yes. but I think that it's starting to really hit home in a, in a big way, and and it's got a lot of people scrambling, and and it's either closed galleries or galleries are really having to be nimble and yeah. thinking about how can I reimagine my programming, how can I reimagine my roster. Uh, that sort of thing. But then that also falls on artists is we're having to be, I think artists now are having to be much more entrepreneurial mm-hmm. than we were yeah. 5, 10, 15 years ago. I agree. You know? And we need those mid-level. That middle is actually important. Yeah. Because, and you I'm not just go saying somewhere. that because I'm probably in there. <laughs> but I think that there's a lot of art and artists in that middle or even in business or fashion or whatever it is that are creating stuff that's really important that maybe it takes a generation or it takes a little while to look back and really find a real you know a real re-interest or value in some of that work but if it's if no one can afford a studio or like no one's buying that work or it disappears you know then that's a big voice that we're losing and then you're only left with the gigantic mega galleries of the world with their roster yeah and you know well, what was happening too is like a lot, of, like a lot of emerging galleries were starting to build incredible careers for their artists, yeah. and then their artists were being gobbled up by the mega gallery, mm-hmm. and so then that totally stunted that emerging gallery from becoming a mid-level gallery because they lost their artist who was actually making them any money, right. and I feel like that is a real evisceration of the sort of maturation process. Exactly. <clears throat> Um, what I what I think what I wonder if we're going to see is a sort of like uh, big league team and a field team sort of situation where mm-hmm. like you'll see like a big gallery like Gagosian sort of buy up a smaller gallery and then but use that smaller gallery to like start emerging artists and right. they graduate up to you know like like I you know team. you look at like Lisa Cooley who now works at Paula Cooper mm-hmm. like how come she couldn't have gone to Paula Cooper and been like listen I'm going out of business mm-hmm. can you sort of front me 
the money to continue in business, but you sort of become like a silent partner right. and I'll make these artists bigger and then they can go to you, mm-hmm. you know? And so like that way you've got like a larger gallery that's helping the smaller gallery. The smaller gallery can still work with emerging new, interesting dynamic programming, mm-hmm. but they don't have to go out of business when their artists get too big. There's like a place for them to go. Well, the difference between the art world and the business world is that it's so much about the look of it or the, you know, the perception. Right. Like the, of course. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. It's yeah. like you, you couldn't lead on yeah. to that. <laughs> right. You couldn't. You know, because it would just look a certain way or something. Right. But then why can't we reimagine? You know, like I think that, that we do have a certain ability to once things are shocking at first, but then once we realize that they make sense or they work, like something has to happen. Like yeah. I think that like some, we do have to reimagine and re-envision how the art system, market, gallery, artist making situation, it's like a, it's an organism. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like a bee with a flower. You know, once the flower goes, the bee dies. They're really one and of the same. Yeah. And I feel like we're all that way in this sort of art world organism. And certain aspects of it are dying or falling away. And we need to figure out how we can get this, the, the, the process, the, the biological organism to work again. But they're just looking away and like, the flower's still beautiful, yeah, see? Exactly. It's kind of like, I feel like it's almost like the Department of Sanitation in a way. It's like you, they'll just wait until the other shitstorm of the century hits to yeah. feel like, oh, we probably need more plows or maybe we should get out there and salt ahead of time. Totally. It's like the reactionary. I mean, I feel like when, the, when a lot of those amazing galleries have closed recently, like... Murray Guy and mm-hmm. Wall Space and Lisa and Laurel Gitlin Laurel, yeah. and you know a lot of those uh, Stephen Stewart of Kansas mm-hmm. I took that really personally mm-hmm. uh, because A I knew a lot of those people and I knew a lot of the artists who showed there or I had shown there vice versa or my gallery Fitzroy that I worked with for a number of years closed as well mm-hmm. for all the above said type of reasons um it, it really sort of is an existential crisis of like, well, this hits us in a gut, in our gut. Like, what are we going to do? Yeah. It, in a way, it sort of feels like the whole Trump uh, administration right now. It's like hit, hits a lot of us in a gut level. And we're like, well, what the fuck are we going to do yeah. about this? Yeah. Because we got a problem. Uh, it's and a, and a lot of the problem is of, is of our own making. Mm-hmm. Like we are part and parcel of that problem. It's not like we just went to sleep and woke up with yeah. it. Um, so or there it is, just happened to us. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a lot of self-reflection that needs to go on in the whole country, but also in the art world, and I'm game for it. Yeah. Well, I think complacency is a bad, is a bad thing in general, you know, yeah. on different levels. Even in your own work, like when you start to feel complacent about things. It is time real, to move on. That's yeah. a danger. That's like Absolutely. A, you know, a red X. It's like t- time to like change but it's easy to get into that complacency you know well because you know on many levels there's a lot going on in one's life and and sometimes you got to find a place to rest for a minute and we have a lot of pictures to post yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know that but i do i do feel like you know you're alive when there are challenges when there's things that you have to overcome uh you know like i have up on that wall a little post-it that says the road to success is not always a road 
<laughs> because sometimes it's like a treacherous mountain pass that's been blown out by a avalanche. Right. But so you've got to like you know get at your grappling hook that's and be the like path. Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. create either create a whole new path or just like bound over it or you know yeah it's problem solving. Coincidentally attached to Sinead, or just. <laughs> <laughs> coincidentally attached to Sinead, but she's a great example of someone who's had a roller coaster ride of, you know, yeah. life, love, career. She is a true artist, I think, in the most distilled sense of of, yeah. of, of artist. And um and I I draw a lot from the well of inspiration that she offers. Yeah. Well can it well and moving to the right on your inspiration board <laughs> Um, your attraction towards Greek iconography, where did that come from? Well, at first, I mean, if you, you look at that inspiration board and it's got Greek, it's got Egyptian, it has Roman, it has Assyrian, it goes mm-hmm. sort of all through antiquity. And a lot of it came from my initial uh, delayed obsession with Egypt. I feel like most people go through an Egyptian obsession in third grade or fourth grade. And, and at that pyramids are Exactly. And at that time I was not interested in it at all. I was interested in the Titanic and Africa. Um which are two disparate things but <laughs> <laughs> but um that that um at, at any rate, so it wasn't until sort of post grad school that I went through a sort of Egyptomania phase mm-hmm. and and because uh, I was interested in the writings and ideas of G.I. Gurdjieff, who is an early 20th century mystic. And mm-hmm. I had done a whole body of work about him and his followers uh, in France, who are a bunch of real uh, eccentric lesbians. Mm-hmm. And I'd done a lot of work about that. And it had quite a nice level of success for being a young artist. And and often when you have a certain level of success with a work of, with a body of work the question everyone asks is well what's next yeah. what's next what are you doing next what are you doing next what's next what are you going to do you know <laughs> and finally i i was like well yeah what is next and gurdjieff always said when anyone would ask him like a real critical difficult question he would say go back to egypt go back to ancient egypt look at what the egyptians said or did and that's where you'll find your answer and so I remember reading that and thinking, well, what's next? Okay, I'm going to go back to Egypt. I'm going to go back to pre-sand Egypt, as as Gurdjieff called it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, that's precisely what I did. And I became fascinated with the idea of, of armchair travel mm-hmm. and how I had not been to Egypt at that time. But I was interested in what's called Egyptomania and the birth of Egyptology, of the Victorian age. And so my work started to become about um, these Egyptologists who were going to Egypt and quote, rediscover or discovering Egypt and then Napoleon's conquest of Egypt and bringing in the savants to go uh, catalog everything in Egypt, which was like this great enlightenment uh, experiment. So my work started to become critical of, of the Western obsession with the Orient. I was really into Edward Said's book, Orientalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of books on Egyptology. Uh, and so the work sort of really revolved around ideas of, of, of that. But I was also intrigued by the forms and, and 
objects of Egypt mm -hmm. and the spiritual uh, imbuement uh, into those objects and they're functioning on multiple levels aesthetic spiritual uh, because ancient Egypt was really a death cult mm -hmm. and they had so much iconography based around that in their spiritual system so that that became a guiding principle and I did a number of exhibitions relating to that uh, Egyptian work and then of course begged the question well what's next you know from that and then I decided to really start swimming through history, sort of. Like, I've always been interested in uh, the classical antiquity and Greek philosophy and Greek tragedy deeply. Like, I, I read a lot of Aristotle, Plato, fascinated with Socrates, loved the pre-Socratic philosophers, uh, took a lot of classes when I was an undergraduate at NYU in, in classics. So it made sense to start looking at classicism um, and Hellenism, but that's gone. Now I've that's become uh, an egg that's really been cracked wide open. Mm -hmm. um, now I, I'm dealing much more with uh, the the clash of the Arab world with the with the Hellenistic world um, in the seventh century. That, so it, my work has become more political, more about language. So it's sort of opened up um, on many levels. But you've also embedded in that a certain pictorial. Like there's the con it seems like the conceptual, like what you're talking about, is sort of the bedrock behind the images, but there's a, a heavy sort of investigation of just the paint and the picture plane and that as well, right? It's the, is it a marriage of the two things? Sure. Well, I, I, I was recently reading an interview with Philip Taff, and, he, and someone was asking him almost the same question, and he was like, well, it's really all about light. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's actually exactly what it's about, because a lot of people come into my studio or see my exhibition say, there's a real quality to the light of the paintings, the colors and lights of the paintings that are reminiscent or seem to encapsulate that a sort of romantic feel of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so like, to me, that is a great challenge of how do you imbue a sense of geographic light or historical light using paint? Mm -hmm. So it's not just about the graphics, it's about creating um, a sense of place that sort of atemporal that that speaks to el elsewhere. Yeah. Did you, so have you, being interested in Egyptian and Greek sort of iconography, have you also moved into other areas? Especially like, it seems like ceramics are, you're drawn to the ceramics Well, I've too. done a lot of painting of ceramics mm -hmm. because I, I'm intrigued by the idea of the amphora, which I, I was really, in, enchanted to learn that that the word metaphor comes from the Greek word amphora, which is to carry. So like a metaphor carries meaning, much in the same way that the amphora carries oil or wine or something. So I, so I found that to be interesting. So to me, conceptually, using the amphora um, is so symbolic of, of carrying meaning and through either objects or through text or through image what have you so so the so the vase the sort of amphora shows up a lot in my work and then formally of course it's very earthy it's very earth mother it's archetypal mm -hmm. 
And the uh, the palette is very tied to that, like what you were talking about, that Mediterranean light, because you have a very specific. The palette is the fantasy, palette. though. The pa- the palette to me is like is like my is where I get to put in a little bit of poetry. Yeah. It, it's my extrapolation. It it it's where I get to really go to another place, another world, create mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and there's a there's a real surface like these ones that, you know. Looking at this painting with the white, I mean, there's it's a real nice surface quality to it. Well, that's very important. Physicality. To me. Yeah, the the actual physicality of the painting, because I'm when I when I've gone to Egypt and to the Mediterranean and to a lot of these places, what's I'm struck by is the tactility of a lot of these places. Mm-hmm. The wall, the feeling of the wall, the presence of an engraving or an epigraph on the wall. Um, or even the sculpture, the, the, the look, the feel, the sort of touch of the sculptures and things like that. So my work, although it's painting, tries to capture a sense of dynamic surface. Mm-hmm. Because, and the way that I paint with the impasto and the, and the repetitive brush mark, mm-hmm. it captures the light in so many different ways that as you walk around the painting, it changes in value and tone even though mo- it's often so monochromatic. Yeah. Um, and so to me, that, that references the, the surface of antiquity, this idea of the wall that hold like the wall of antiquity holds meaning. Like I love that, that, that phrase of, oh, if these walls could speak, yeah. but they do, right? Yeah. They, they act, like in many respects, I, I derive a lot of inspiration from graffiti on the walls of the Agora mm-hmm. in Athens, because that was, the Agora was the original Facebook mm-hmm. where everyone would be like, you know, selling their opinion, posting shit on the wall, but, you know, sort yeah. of idea where there would be trials. There would be, you know, Socrates was on trial in the Agora. It was sort of like this public spectacle. So to me, I, 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 I have a lot of research I've done of the graffiti on the walls of the Agora and I derive a lot of the text uh, that I use from that. Yeah, and the the idea just popped in my head of Plato's Cave of the idea mm-hmm. of reality being this sort of projected image on the wall too, and that's kind of what making images does in a way is yeah. just creates this other world and like a two dimension, especially in painting, like a two dimensional representation of the world and yeah. the, how the the artifice of art is related to that idea of you know, a projected image that may or may not be real. It's just what we're seeing. Well, in a way, you know, time is this interfoldable, malleable, abstract concept. Mm -hmm. And so I've taken a lot of inspiration from the poems of C.P. Cavafy, who was an early 20th century uh, Greek poet who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. Mm -hmm. And his poetry deals so much with antiquity uh, but also contemporary Alexandria and in one poem he'll reference antiquity and contemporary Alexandria in such a way that you never know what time period you're actually in and he just conflates time in this insane way and he also imbues it with a lot of uh, either overt or subtle references to homosexuality and so he was really this this meta modernist, but who was working in a certain level of obscurity in Alexandria. Uh, certain people were in into him 
like Ian Forster was was obsessed with Cavafy and um, so he did have some readership but but his work now you look at it and it's totally sort of out of time I, I, I really he is my like spirit guide in so many levels because I find that like I want my work to simultaneously be uh, in fifth century Athens but also be in 21st century New York, mm-hmm. but also be, you know, in any other possible uh, interim period between that. Yeah. And, and so that, that's a goal of mine, whether or not it's successful, uh, I don't know. Well, it looks like in some of these, you're paring things down just to the mark, as opposed to the, you know, the pictorial references that are going on in some, yeah. how is that balance for you? Well, it's, I think it, there's totally like you, if you showed a show just of the that kind of work yeah. that's less pictorial, and then a show of just the pictorial things, I feel like it would have a, it would obviously work together, but it's a totally different vibe, and like you go well, to a different place. So you see, like in this room, you have these like monochromes, and then you have like singular graphic objects, and then you have like two-dimensional vase scribbles, right? To me, they all work together in that way of like a solo show or an album does there. They seem different. Like they don't necessarily make sense, but when they're all be when they're all seen together, they do. Uh, I don't really set out to make like a singular masterpiece. I have no Guernica, you know? Um, I think my Guernica is like the whole exhibition. Right. Um, so that's often how I work. Yeah. So I see a lot of these paintings in direct dialogue with each other. Um, and not being particularly a singular encapsulated idea. Yeah, it's like the space in between says a lot. You know, like the difference between those images together collectively create a different kind of environment. You totally. Know? It's like the like they say, like the space between the notes of the music is what allows the music to make sense and come together. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like that negative space. Yeah. There's an air to breathe there in between those images. Yeah. And what does that piece say differently when it's surrounded by those two pieces you know what I mean that kind of but I still do hope I mean my my hope is that in the end each work is a sort of singular piece Mm -hmm. because hopefully someone buys it takes it home and lives with it and it would speak to them as much as it would with the rest of the group so I I do feel like you could distill each singular piece and say okay there is a an idea in here that stands on its own. Yeah. But no, it's so. but it's more of the symphony when it's all together. Right. Well, do you listen to symphonies whenever you're in here? I do. You do? Um, I listen to a lot of classical music, mm-hmm. uh, mostly Mozart. I've, in the past four years, I've become really, really into Mozart. And I have a friend who's a big music person and laughs at me like, oh, that's like saying you're really into Da Vinci. but for for someone who's not a like a musical i'm not a musician i didn't study music so Mm -hmm. to me mozart is is a whole world to discover same with beethoven i mean i love beethoven since high school um but i feel like you can just be diving into beethoven and mozart and never get Bored. Oh yeah. It's just like it's like they're to me like a like a Picasso type of character. It's right. like how you think you've seen every Picasso? No. Yeah. There's always a Picasso that you haven't seen. I know, and <laughs> I tell that story all the time about you know when I was a student, I hated Picasso. People yeah. would say, oh, Picasso. and I'd be like, 
overrated and I just didn't sure. get it yet. And then, Povero Picasso. Yeah. The older <laughs> you get and like you look, you just keep seeing these shows that pop yeah. up of like drawings or work within a period that yeah. you're familiar with his work, but you haven't seen this work. And then you grow up and then away. you hate Renoir. Yeah. You know, like when I was in high school, I thought Renoir was cool or whatever. But now that I'm older, I if I have to slog through looking at a Renoir, it's like one slog too many. Like I like the Barnes Foundation turned me off to, to Renoir. Like he's so awful. Yeah. You know, but Cezanne is like my Tahiti. Yeah. I mean, he like keeps on giving and giving. I know that's it's amazing work. The Renoir, wasn't he the one who was getting shit on recently? By yeah, there was like a big protest. protest or <laughs> I, I, well, do, I do remember thinking that was pretty clever. Like, yeah, let's protest Renoir. Why the hell not? Well, that's but that was before we had real shit I was protest. just going to say, that's, that was an eight years <laughs> yeah. of like relative calm where it's like, you got, really, you got to look for Renoir to protest? How depraved were our politics? Or how like low did our sort of political activism go that we were like only able to muster up protesting <laughs> Renoir? I mean, admirable on a certain level, but really sort of sad. And the other. Yeah, well, now we have bigger yeah. fish to fry. But I, but but in terms of classical music, I I play classical music for my classes. Mm-hmm. All my all the classes that I teach at the different schools I teach at, I always play music. I yeah. either bring a speaker if there isn't one, uh-huh. or if there are speakers in the classroom. And so, the minute we start like drawing or painting. Um, I put on Mozart, Mozart. or... Oh, that's brutal for the kids. Probably <laughs> I know, some of them... They're probably not there yet. And you know, <laughs> and, I, and I do give them like a, a, not too like didactic of a lecture, but I do tell them like the importance of sort of non-objective music yeah. when, you're, when you're all working together in a group. Right. And because they're always like, oh, put on like, you know, Beyonce or something. I'm like, no, because there's messages in, there's like literal messages in that that like, could distract you but yeah, in classical true. music we're all sort of working together i want everyone to, to be like on the same page and 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 i also want to expose them because a lot of the schools that i teach at are not schools that those students come from any type of a privilege yeah so most of them have no exposure to mozart debussy eric sati uh, chopin all these great musicians and so I also feel like you know what I'm introducing you to a whole world of art but I'm also introducing you to a whole world of music and at the whenever I get my student evaluations back they never say I didn't like that they almost always say like I love that Professor Hall played classical music it was so relaxing it was so I look forward to this class because it was so stress reducing yeah and so to me, that's in the end, like the, all the validation I needed for boring the hell out of them. <laughs> well, I advert that potential for positive um, reflection on my classes by playing like Ornette Coleman's free jazz for two <laughs> Right. Destroying well, I did, the, I, I did play Sun Ra room. once oh, yeah, and I felt go. like oddly that was more disruptive because yeah. they were focusing too much on yeah, the music. Like, what yeah. going on like, here? so I need to find the, the happy medium between like boring and edifying. Yeah. And <laughs> agitating and irritating. Yeah. Like you might want to agitate yeah. their senses a bit, but not irritate. Well, so when I do want to go to that level, I do sometimes put on like the Amelie soundtrack <laughs> you know? or like, or like, or, um, or some Philip glass that, yeah. that can really drive you insane, right. you know? And, but, or, or, 
traditional Greek music, oh, <laughs> you know, like or like yeah. world music. Like I play yeah. a, play actually a lot of world music, um, just like drumming or whatever, yeah. like or like flute sort of stuff, you know. Um, without and without the context, I feel like that music can really be throw people. <laughs> it absolutely and, can, you know. Yeah, because I don't I don't think I. It's it's funny how you get to certain music through other music. Yeah. But if you don't have that interest or historical investigation into it, you yeah, just because like, I remember what? like playing like Herbie Hancock, some Herbie Hancock from like the seventies when he got ama- that amazing era between the sort of you know Watermelon Man and then when it got into like real you far know, out. Yeah, or just the no, the sort of smoother okay. side of things, like yeah. the weather reportish stuff. Okay. You know, there was a, a a few records of intense funk that was so experimental with like with uh, analog synths and stuff that was really incredible. And I remember after the class, one person saying to me like, "Can we not listen to smooth jazz next time?" And I was like, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, you don't understand. This is not smooth. <laughs> I mean, there's a part of me that actually really deeply wants to just play Morrissey and The Cure and New Order and Depeche Mode mm-hmm. in my classes and be like, listen, kids, this is the jam, like, the get over it, you know? <laughs> but but I do feel like that probably would be too alienating or too, or too sort of forceful about, like, my particular deep, taste in things because that because you know like that's that's the music that I got into when I was really coming into who I was and Mm -hmm. I still as you can see my pile of CDs has like on top is a cure is cure disintegration the smith's hat full of hollow morrissey kill uncle you know it's like my junior high <laughs> i know and, and part of me is like slightly embarrassed in a way but but part of me is also like no this is this this is my canon right here you know this is yeah. like i i i still live by the cure and the smiths <laughs> yeah but there's some things you're, to your point i guess i didn't think about it too much but certain lyrics that will just take you away from your concentration like if some girls are bigger than others comes on no one's paying attention like they're all hearing those lyrics and tingling or chuckling or whatever and i feel that way about hip-hop because there's certain like rap music that i grew up on that i love but i would never play in a class situation because i feel like it just wouldn't sure your brain would go too close to those there but do you when you're working do you but you listen to podcasts and stuff, so you can think outside. I do, but you know, I can't. Well, it's it's interesting, and I've wanted to make this distinction because I've you've asked other people this question before, mm-hmm. and I've had to think about like, well, where do I fit on this spectrum? So here's where I fit in on it. I cannot listen to any book on tape because I can't follow a narrative yeah. while I'm listening while I'm painting. So I do listen to podcasts. I listen to your podcast. I only really listen to a select few. I listen to one that's interviews with Jungian psychoanalysts mm-hmm. called Speaking of Jung. And that is amazing. Yeah, that sounds far out. I listen to one called The Partially Examined Life, which is a philosophy podcast mm-hmm. where they discuss really great philosophical texts. I listen to the BBC In Our Time philosophy podcast. Um, I listen to one or two other Jungian-related podcasts and one or two other philosophy-related podcasts. Is this philosophy bites? I do. I've listened to philosophy bites. It's a little too 
glib for me. Yeah. It's that Nigel Wa- Warburton. Nigel Warburton. He yeah, wrote Nigel. an essay on my... I did a show in Zurich on surveillance, and he oh. wrote the essay to that. Wow. Yeah. But yeah. It was a really interesting take on surveillance and what that does to people. Well, he's very smart, and I do... I, I, I've, I've listened a lot to philosophy bites but sometimes is, is that the one also where he has like a musical interlude like in between they'll he'll like play a, like a song i don't know to be honest i haven't not listened, listened to, to it through yeah. to where i know but um but yeah i mostly listen to uh those things and sometimes i'll listen to like a podcast of the leonard lopate show mm-hmm. um but generally i'm I, I listen to music and either yeah. it's like something that i know really well or it's something non-objective like classical music or like during the election I could only listen to new age yoga music because Relax. I was so yeah. stressed out and I was really campaigning hard for Hillary because I knew I knew that Trump was going to be this way. Yeah. I feel like people who thought Trump was not going to be this way they and didn't Trump. do anything were so stupid. Like well, I for knew those of us who live in New York. Yeah you kind of have a different interpretation of him than people. Sure. I mean, there were some people in middle America who probably didn't realize really what Trump is. Yeah. Well, I realized it. So I, 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 I was like very stressed out during the election. So I could only really listen to like yoga, new age music, Mm -hmm. which is funny because the dog who's here, Luca would bark at, the new age music so I I couldn't really listen to it for all that long after a certain point like if a little bird would come on and start tweeting he'd bark Uh or if like a waterfall sound would come on he would bark at that it's funny how so it's sensory I thought it was just a critique of the music no (laughs) it's sensory but it's interesting the dog actually barks at um, the Stone Roses mm-hmm. he barks at certain songs of The Cure anytime there's like a certain sort of droning thing he'll yeah. like get up and he'll bark at the music so that's been interesting oh but what I also wanted to say is that I can't listen to any podcast while I'm in the creative process Right. so when I am actually drawing out on this uh-huh. canvas or if I'm like coming up with the idea decisions decisions yeah. and things I can't listen to anyone talking I can only listen to music yeah. but when I'm actually just executing something then I can listen to the podcast or people or people that makes speaking. sense yeah. you don't want it to you know your mind wandering in that way so. yeah I just can't really li- I can't focus on someone speaking while I'm creatively yeah. working making those decisions yeah which i didn't realize was happening until i had to think about like well why why don't i listen to podcasts when i'm in the creative process yeah i feel like with books on tape for me i can never uh, if i listen to it even when i'm driving because you concentrate on driving you know i mean it's it's kind of when you're on the highway you could just go but you're still you're driving i'll just black out for a while and you know like oh i wasn't paying attention there i gotta rewind and then it turns into this thing where it's just not like a linear. I one time you know. thought that I had been abducted by aliens while I was driving because I was driving along and all of a sudden I looked around and I'm like, how did I get here? <laughs> yeah. Like how, like I didn't, I don't remember the last five minutes of this, of this trip. It's kind of meditative though. Yeah, but it was also terrifying. Yeah. It's like where it's where like the hell is my drunk when you're yeah. like where oh the hell is my brain for the last five ten ac- minutes while I was driving? Can't account for that time in my life. <laughs> exactly. That happened to me once in college, <laughs> like when I was really young, and I, I never blacked, blacked out. out. 
and uh, and I'm not a drinker. Like uh-huh. I, I never did really, but I had this one night where I had a lot of drinks quickly in this social setting. I blacked out, and to this day, there's one night of my life where I have a verbal account from a friend on what I did and oh, what right. happened that I can't account for, and that's very strange. To me. Yeah, everything else I know. But that one night, yeah, that's interesting because I I said that I never had that experience, but I do realize that there was one when my friend Paul Sapuya was doing a residency in Chicago. I decided I'd go out there and I'd visit him, and I was never a big partier, never a big drinker. But I went out there, and it was only like three or four years ago. And we went out on the town, and we just went to everything. We drank. We were, you know, we just tied one over. And all of a sudden, I woke up and we were back at his place. <laughs> and I and I woke up the next morning. And I said, "Paul, how did we get back here?" He said, "We took a, a Uber. It took like forty minutes. We were like in a, we were like in the north side of Chicago, and we were staying in the south side. And I was like, I have no recollection of Raced, getting into that yeah. car, the car ride, or anything." And it was like one of the, it was like I, I woke up that next morning and I was like the most hungover and disoriented I had ever been. I almost didn't make the flight. I almost threw up in the cab. Like my boyfriend and my mom thought that I had died that evening and gotten like, because the la- last photo I sent my boyfriend was from like some underground club that I sent him a black picture of nothing. And I was like, I'm at this weird club. I don't know where it is. I don't remember sending that text message, mm-hmm. which is really funny because like I said, I'm not, I've never been a big drinker, never been a big like partier like that. But yeah. it was sort of a wake up call of, it takes one of what the Kooning's life must've been like, or, <laughs> you know, Pollock's life must've been like. I don't like. understand it. Like, How did people, they get anything done? These people who do like these newer psychoactive <laughs> drugs where oh, yeah. it's like you go to a different world for like 20 minutes. Oh, and not just, like the ayahuasca stuff? No, like right? DMT and stuff like um, that. Like, I don't understand how... I, I'm too much of a control for you guys. I don't like, understand the people who do that ayahuasca stuff where I they know. go yeah. with like a shaman into a room for like 24 sweat hours and like throw, throw up and sweat it out. Like, I mean, just go to Chart Cathedral or something and have a spiritual experience. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. Different strokes for different things, <laughs> I, I guess. I just think it's funny. When I heard the description yeah. of that, I'm like, so wait, people sign up for this? Yeah. Like, or, or pay a lot of money for yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, some people do that. Other people go to like, you know, Zen Mountain Monastery. Other just, other just people the, just become alcoholics. So just it's go like, to the gym and run for a while. And or I just feel go, like I yeah. punished myself, but I feel good afterwards. <laughs> you got to find a way to to find that place inside that needs that fulfillment. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, Carl Jung actually uh, gave the founder of AA the idea for AA. Oh, really? Because Jung told him that no, that he believed that alcoholism was a spiritual problem mm-hmm. and that no one has been able to be cured of alcoholism without somehow fulfilling that spiritual that spiritual side of them. Yeah. And so that's why the whole AA thing has this like spiritual dimension. Mm-hmm. It's, it really becomes like a religion basically. Right. Um, and so the whole notion of that is that you become an alcoholic because you are, there's something inside of you that's, that needs that fulfillment, you know? And yeah. so it's like a whole, like you need the, yeah. And so we have to all, we're all sort of on that journey in life is to find like what, fulfills us in that deep and meaningful way yeah. whether it be art making or you know ayahuasca or or whatever Ultra running yeah or, or run or yeah or 
you know, people with the runner's high, like they get that clarity. Like I think right. a lot of people yeah, want Yeah, the runner's high. Yeah, clarity. they're totally doing that for the same reason that people take to drinking or yeah. take to whatever, you know. You just feel yeah. like you're you're existing on a <clears throat> on another level than yeah. just your day-to-day. Which like, is a beautiful place. It is. Yeah. Well, I feel like for me that's the gift of art making Absolutely. Is, is when I'm in that zone, which is, you know, it's hard to get in that zone. But Why do you think I do this hyper repetitive work here? <laughs> right. This is my ayahuasca. Yeah. You just get in that I zone. I trip the fuck out on my own trip. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, I yeah. feel like it's when I feel the best yeah. or you have this de-stressing like clarity. Yeah. I get actually very high on my way to the studio because I know. Yeah, because I know I'm going to like my sacred space where I I light incense, mm-hmm. I sort of say some personal prayers, I make a, a ritual out of the whole thing, I get very focused, and I put on usually at first some very relaxing, tranquil music or something like that, and so it's a great way to sort of break into the day on this really zen out level. Well, I really threw a monkey wrench in your day with this whole operation. Oh, no, I, I had a few hours before you came here. Oh, so you've had of it. Getting into nice. that, getting into that zone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a really nice place to be. Yeah. You know. So um, so what are you working? Do you have anything coming up? I am working on a show with Jeff Bailey nice. in Hudson at mm-hmm. his gallery up in Hudson in April. So that's what I sort of am working on now. I've I've already made a lot of the work for that. I have a few little tricks up my sleeve. Um, so that's that's coming up. That's not like a full out solo show. He does mm-hmm. like sort of these two people solo shows. They're not two person shows. Right. They're like Just two separate two spaces. Yeah. But it's not that big of a right. show. And then. Um, I've started to work a little bit with this gallery in Italy named the Eduardo Secchi Gallery. Mm-hmm. And and so we've got some things coming up that we've been talking about, which I'm very excited about because I lived in Florence for a number of years um, during undergraduate. Because mm-hmm. uh, I went to NYU and, I, and they have a beautiful campus in Florence, Italy. And <clears throat> I ended up studying there and then I, couldn't leave and I I ended up working there for NYU for a couple of years as a TA and an RA Um, and I've always gone back or looked to go back and so when this Italian gallery was in Florence and contacted me I was like whoa perfect situation couldn't say no even if you were like crazy you know because so and so I went I just went back to Florence um, over the holiday and met with them and saw some old friends and um, just enjoyed that marvelous little jewel box of a city. Yeah. And you do you only work here or do you also work upstate or not upstate but I, I work I work primarily well I work in a number of different spaces. This space that we're in in Greenpoint is my painting studio mm-hmm. and I only paint here. Yeah. For various reasons, because of course paint is, I only do oil paint, so I can't really work on drawings in the same room. I work on oil paint, Mm because it would just get messy. So I only work on oil painting in this studio. And then in my apartment in Williamsburg, 
we have a separate room, like an office studio room, <clears throat> um, that I work on drawings there. And then my family lives in Warwick, New York, about an hour and a half northwest of here. And we go there pretty much every weekend, mm -hmm. and I spend a lot of free time there. And there I have some space where I work on, if I work on three-dimensional stuff, mm -hmm. which I often will do installation elements for my exhibitions, yeah. or I'll make incense, or I'll make a candle, or I'll make oil, mix oils to go into pots, into mm -hmm. vases and things. And so I do that sort of like messier work up there because we have a lot of, a lot of space and a, a barn to Isn't work in. orchard related? Yes. You? Well, my family owns an apple orchard um, that my parents live on. Which one is it? It's called Applewood Orchards. Well, actually, now it's called Apple Dave's Orchards, named after my uncle who passed away. Gotcha. And there's also a winery that my cousin runs called Applewood Winery. Because I've been apple picking there. I, think. I don't know if it's at the same orchard, but... I mean, it may have been. It's definitely a one of the popular ones and it's close by New York City. I think it's crazy nowadays. I mean, they've gotten more and more popular to where there's so many cars yeah. involved that like we've pushed, sometimes we have to go further because oh, they wow. get, sometimes they get so overpicked. You, you know? got, yes, they do get overpicked. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it's funny cause it's, it, it's, um, it, it, my grandfather was a medical doctor who was a Sunday painter mm -hmm. and he was a landscape painter and he he want he was he was a paint, he was a, a doctor in New Jersey in Ridgewood New Jersey in the suburbs and he wanted a farm to paint at and so back in the 40s real estate of course was very inexpensive yeah. up the river and so he bought uh, a farm in Warwick New York which is where our family was originally from that area mm -hmm. um, so that's why he was sort of guided there and he bought this farm and he invited all his painter friends from the Ridgewood Art Institute to come up on the weekends and paint the farm. It's beautiful, beautiful farm, rolling hills and whatnot. And then my uncle, who was about 16 or so at the time, said, I want to be an apple farmer when I grow up. And my grandfather said, wonderful. Well, we have this farm, yeah. and it has south-facing slopes. And so my uncle ended up going to Cornell and became an apple farmer and sort of took over the farm as a operation. Yeah. And then my grandparents retired to the farm um, as well. And my grandfather ended up just painting for the last 25 years of his life there. And then my aunt moved to the farm and then my cousins grew up and they moved on to the farm. And then my parents, uh, my dad decided, well, I want to live on the farm. So, you know, so it's be, ended up becoming this like huge family compound like where like magnet. all these family members live yeah. on different parts of the farm um, for better or for worse. Yeah. And, and uh, so that's how we, so my parents aren't farmers, right. but we happen to live basically in on the, the middle of the apple orchard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, but I actually grew up in it in, in a little hippie craft village, mm -hmm. which is pretty funky. It's a place called Sugarloaf. Have you ever been through there? I know the, the place, but I haven't yeah. spent time here. It's a trip. Yeah. Um, it's like a little village of craft 
people who make like soap and candles yeah. and you know blacksmiths and stained glass artists and that sort of thing and uh so i i always sort of credit that to being to being an environment that allowed me to imagine how i could be an artist be creative right? yeah be yeah. creative have a business be an entrepreneur and just that whole area of the Warwick Sugarloaf area up in Orange County mm -hmm. is a very creative place. And we used to have uh, an open studio tour. And so when I was in high school, um, I, I was able to go visit all these artists who had studios. And I was like, oh, I, I could, could I do that? I could do this, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, um, and so the community has always been a very important part of my life yeah. and that's also why I spend so much time up there and always am thinking of like well can we move back up there like could we buy a house and you know live either on the farm yeah. or in the Warwick area and get involved in that community and you know could I leave New York City I don't know you know it's mm -hmm. it's always sort of a running debate but it becomes more and more real especially yeah. when you look at how much like we we look at like property with houses and studios up there mm -hmm. and the we do the mortgage calculation right. and it costs for all that less than it does for our apartment and studio and stuff here yeah and and so sometimes it's like do the math people like right. why like why <laughs> just get out and have a huge yeah. Amount of space. Yeah. So so that we're always sort of like and that would probably be where we would go because that's the community community that like it's familiar gives. in a way yeah right? yeah because sometimes if you go you know in those outlying areas and you just visit and you're not you haven't grown up or you have no connection to it you might be like who are these people the boondocks yeah and you would never yeah. live think to live there but then if you were around it or you grew up around it it's, yeah. it feels comfortable in the well what's interesting too is that they keep really low profiles but up in that area are actually some really famous artists mm -hmm. like we have Robert Whitman, who lives in Warwick. Mm -hmm. um, Jed Bark and Lois Lane live in Warwick. Um, uh, Robert Mangold lives down the street in Washingtonville. Mm -hmm. um, there's some, there have been some famous actors and musicians, and but it's not a fancy. It's not like yeah. Westchester. You know, it's actually not a fancy area. It's where people go when they sort of don't want that. Kind of quiet. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, because there's two mountain ranges that sort of separate the Warwick Valley from yeah. New York City, and there isn't a direct, easy transportation line. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of protected the oh. area. So it's still sort of rural, not too expensive, but still commutable. Yeah. But you have to be pretty serious about your commute. <laughs> and you, yeah, but you're not driving up to like Syracuse, you know, or like, no. you know, so it's, it's yeah. more doable. Yeah. It's yeah. the Hudson Valley. It's nice to have that getting out of the city opportunity. You know? Definitely. That's I mean, if I if I had to, if I didn't have that ability to go to my parents' house all the time, mm -hmm. I don't know if I actually could live in New York City because I feel like I'm at heart a country yeah. boy. Like I I need more of that outdoors space and activity of the outdoors and exhaling yeah which the city doesn't allow you to do easily. totally or be able to look more than like a hundred feet in yeah. front of you right um so i think that that's been able that's let me stay in new york city because 
as you've said in your podcast so many times, New York City is not a place that really wants you. Yeah. It's sort of the the way this place is structured. It's like always trying to gobble you up and spit you, you out. out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? It wants to weed everyone yeah. out who's not fit. You yeah. Know? You just have to find like those. And I've been lucky to find really glorious rental, cheap rental situations that have, you know, been able to keep me in the same apartment, the same studio. And it's yeah. totally by luck. It's like, has no, I can't chalk it up to anything, but have been, been in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Well, at this place, any real estate deal is luck. Because yeah. it's all known. And it's totally. all, it's like going to a vintage store and finding yeah. like an old, beautiful guitar. It doesn't happen anymore because right. everyone's on eBay or, and, you know, people know, right. You know what you got. Well, it's also like that with, with teaching because I've been on the hunt for a full-time teaching gig and I've had so many near misses and people always say, well, it's it's really luck. It's like, right, you got to be at the right place at the right time, knowing the right people, like, mm-hmm. and it all is like a perfect storm, you know, when it, when it happens for you. And so that, but that's actually what keeps me going is that I know that like for the things in my life that I, that I want or I want to make happen, I know that if I just keep vigilant and just make sure like, okay, keep telling myself I got to be in the right place at the right time. I'm in the right place at the right time. Like, I think that there is a sort of mind over matter. It just is that sometimes it takes a really long time or, or it happens really fast. Yeah. Well, like you were interviewing James Sienna last week or, or two weeks ago. And when I started graduate school, he was on a real uptick. Mm-hmm. And I remember being really impressed, like, wow, this guy is showing a pace and he's on this magazine and blah, blah, blah. And I said to one of my professors, how did James Sienna get so big? And he said, because he's been around. Don't think this came out of nowhere. Like he's been like, you know, he's struggled. He, but he, you know, met this person, met that person, was involved in this, was involved with that, was in this show, was in that show. Like, and eventually it was yeah. his time, you know, it was like a right place, right time. And, and, um, and so I always think of that sort of thing that like, you know, you gotta be in it to win it. You're yeah. Not it's not the poof thing. And yeah. even if you do get the poof, I'm famous thing, that's going to go away immediately, you know, or shortly totally. thereafter. So I'm so skeptical of you that. You just have to be committed to your work and, and communicating with people for a long time. And you yeah. know, you've kind of find your niche. I remember, also in grad school, a professor of mine, maybe it was Glenn Goldberg who told me this. It certainly sounds like something that Glenn would say. He's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta think. Do you want a career that's gonna be like, a sh- like a shooting star that like then blows out and like fades away, mm-hmm. or do you want to be like, you know, the comet that sort of come that keeps like coming around, right. you know? And and I think of that too. Is like, you know. It's a nice metaphor. You might not see that comet for 50 years, but like, you know, it's like going right. to come back around, you know. And you know, it's out there. Yeah, it's you know, it's out there. It's space. like blazing away, you know. Um, and it's always when it comes back around, everyone's like, oh, look, it's yeah, still there. Totally. They're still making it. Or work. then they celebrate it. Like, yeah. I remember when Haley's Comet came through when I was a little kid, yeah. it was like such a big deal. And I remember seeing it with my grandfather, and this mm-hmm. sort of makes me sad, but I remember he was like 80 something at the time. And he was like, and he said to me, he's like, the next time you see this, you're going to be my age. Crazy. And like, I remember thinking like, that was one of those seminal times in your life where you realize like time in a way, like you can put a marker on it. Yeah. It means more than just like bedtime and like waking up, but like time, time. 
Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> well, um, I know you you have reservations about it to an extent, but can people find your work online? And I mean, you have your well, website. Well, I like online. I mean, I have a, I've had a website since 2004. GeoCities? <laughs> it was originally GeoCities. Yeah, it was originally a GeoCities website. Me too. That uh, and 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 here's my here's my dirty 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 secret which shocks everyone, which is why this I love to tell This is going out to millions of people. Okay, listen to this, everyone. <laughs> I make my website on Microsoft Word. Whoa. Like, my whole website, I still do it the way that I it that has, I did it in, like, 04. Yeah. It's like I make, make the website as a Word document. <laughs> Save it as a HTML. HTML. You know how to do Yeah. Yeah, I learned HTML, too. And then upload it yeah. to using, like, uh, Fetch. Right. Like through the FTP thing. Oh, that's you know? how I used to do it. Like I, so I still do it like how people did it t- 13 years ago. I went Squarespace <laughs> at some point, but I used to do that. I, I, to- I tried to figure out Squarespace, and it's one of those things where it's like sometimes when, when technology is too intuitive. It's too user-friendly. It's yeah. too user-friendly. I, th- I think too much about it, right. and it becomes more confusing. Yeah. And that I get from my father because he's like the classic absent-minded professor who like – looks at the you know cd player and Mm -hmm. sees like the pause button as like two two parallel lines and he's like that means nothing to me (laughs) like how how, what does that what does that mean you know like yeah so forget it like if it's too easy it's actually too too hard well html is while it's tricky to learn i guess at the beginning it becomes very easy well microsoft word just translates the html for me I, but I did and at one time have to learn a little bit of the coding mm-hmm. in order to be able to like troubleshoot certain yeah. things. But but you you look at my website, it's actually very simple, very straightforward, I think like very elegant. Um, but you know what? I always put every like year I post into Facebook, like, does anyone look at artist websites anymore? <laughs> because to me I just feel like who the hell like looks at artist websites anymore? I don't, I don't think people do much. You know, like it's weird. Like, Are you on Instagram? Oh, I'm on Instagram, yeah. yeah. It's it Friday, Friday Notes. Because well, Friday Notes is also my website, FridayNotes.com. Mm-hmm. My Instagram is Friday Notes. My Tumblr is Friday Notes. I've like somehow just ended up, everything is Friday Notes. I think mine's Paint Changer, which is a funny story. Cause like, <laughs> when I was in grad school and we had a project to create a website, it was like the first HTML. You know? yeah. And it was, but you just had to do a site that wasn't about your work. It was a project, like right. a drawing that would change each page you click. And I called it Paint Changer because it was a painting that I would just keep oh, changing yeah. over and over. Well, I like that. And that was GeoCities. Yeah. And I just saved it. And it has been that ever since. And every once in a while, someone's like, why is your... The name of your site that, and I'm like, I don't know, it's just from back in the day, but BrianAlfred.com yeah. is like a tax service in London or something, Sure, so I can't use it. I don't even know what TimothyHall.com is. It's probably like a taxidermist or something. <laughs> but um, but it's interesting because my Friday notes comes actually from seventh grade, from a seventh grade science teacher who would assign us a Friday note project where every Friday you'd have to like write these disparate definitions off the blackboard and over the weekend define them and they were all like made no sense they were all disparate they had seemingly no connection to each other Mm -hmm. and then on Monday he would sort of reveal all the hidden connections between all these definitions so like when I was in grad school everyone was like you have to have a website you have to have a website 
and everyone's was like timothyhull.com brianalford.com whatever and i was like no i want mine to be not my name so it was friday notes from that seventh grade teacher and then everything then it's like oh you have to have a handle on this well friday notes and it just sort of became it was it stuck it's yeah just you know and and now it's like sometimes i think oh should i change it to something else and then i feel like well why bother friday notes is sort of it just is what it is yeah it works but then you realize that that these things become like identities yeah and then you you know so i i've known people who've changed their name because they didn't like their previous google identity and so they changed their name to have a new google identity i guess it's important these days identity yeah. politics I is think different than it used to be that artists who are young and coming up think about that sort of thing they're like oh if my name is like you know john smith i might want to change my name to like john you know Flugart or something, you know, something that like isn't already out on Google like crazy. So then everything I do like yeah, would be under original. my name. Yeah, don't yeah. change it to Josh Smith. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I always felt bad for Joshua Smith. Right. You know, because there's Joshua, Joshua. Smith and Josh Smith, and you know. Yeah. Were you starting the Mormon Church or something? <laughs> we you know that was. <laughs> well, thanks for having me over. Thanks for great to, to talk to you and see your stuff. Fun. Cool. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks. on the podcast website soundandvisionpodcast.com The introduction, narration, and music was provided by Michael Lovett of Nazca Lines. All other music was made by Lolotone based out of Nagoya, Japan. Sound and Vision is produced, edited, recorded, and organized by myself, Ryan Alfred. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com Thanks for listening.